0: Um, tonight's Bible reading comes from 1 Corinthians 3, um, chapter 18, or to verses 4 to 5. I'll give you a moment to flick to it. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think that you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools, so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again... The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those who entrust as those entrusted with the mystery of God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God.
1: Good evening again. Please do have that open in front of you. We're going to be trekking through God's word uh, together. If you are visiting tonight or you're new, come back from overseas, some kind of joy like that, uh, we're in a series in 1 Corinthians. And so we've been looking at what it means for us to be called out to be distinctly Christian in an unChristian culture. We're actually halfway through exactly, so we've done five sermons through our 10-week series. We've got another five to go. This will be one of those, those five. We're going to go through the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But tonight, we're in this section right in the, the crossover between chapters uh, 3 and 4. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into it. Our good and gracious God... We do thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself within it. Uh, we thank you that your spirit applies the word to our heart. We thank you that it reveals Jesus as Lord. Father, we ask that as we come around your word tonight, that you will speak clearly through me and that your spirit will be uh, at work amongst all of us as your people to know it is to know what it is that you want to say to us and strive up, help us to strive after the likeness of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to show you a couple of pictures up on the screen. And you'll see the first, first one come up. And just I wonder what comes to your mind as you see that picture. Or you think that picture might be taken. I don't know, maybe you feel like you're out in gorgeous Britain or Europe or something like that. But if you zoom out a little bit, this is where it is. Central Park in New York. Changes the way you view that bridge, doesn't it? What about this one? Classic, someone trying to hold up the Leaning Tower of Pisa. From that picture, it looks like she's doing a good job, but when you take the picture from another angle and then you just see everybody doing this, <laughs> you know? Changes perspective, doesn't it? What about this one? Anyone freak out when they saw that? Looks like they're falling off a cliff. But then just rotate it 90 degrees and it just looks like a clown jumping in the air. Not really. That's pretty clever. But change your perspective, doesn't it? How about this one? Nice tulips. One of a kind looking nice, beautiful when you zoom out. Just in a farm. With lots of other tulips. I think in the Netherlands, I hear, but nonetheless. How about this one? Anyone feeling trapped? Oh, no. But then you zoom out. <laughs> Maybe a little confused, but you can map your way out. And then this one is my, this one's actually my favorite. The next one. Some sand. That sand could be taken from anywhere. It could have been in the backyard of someone's house. It could be in any location. It could have been at the dunes of Tatooine. Anyone watching Obi-Wan Kenobi at the moment? Anyway, it's not there. You zoom out, and it's a gorgeous beach. When you lift your head from looking at the sand and look out, there's what you could see. See, perspective, it changes the way we see things. Having the right perspective or changing our perspective is crucial to so many different aspects of our life. Something which seem, can seem really important, you change your perspective, and it can suddenly seem unimportant. Something scary can become calm. Something dull can become quite beautiful. In the same way, in our walks with God, having a godly perspective changes... It changes everything, really. It changes the way that we see things. It changes the way we understand ourselves, understand God. And it's very easy for us to just kind of get our head down, to keep what... Just head in the moment or just in our own little world, consumed in the here and now. But when we lift our eyes... When we see as God sees, when we see what he is seeing, it puts it all in the right perspective. And tonight, we're looking at how God, through the writing of Paul to the Corinthians, is seeking to change their perspective, and subsequently how he's going to change our perspective. And through exploring this passage, hopefully we're going to see how God changes our perspective in regards to how we see the world, how we see others, and how we see ourselves. And as that happens, hopefully it'll shape the way that we live, and we'll see that it's actually life-giving and liberating uh, when we're focused as God sees things. Now, we are in this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And if you cast your mind back to last week, Paul is directly addressing the issue of division, and particularly division over leaders. You know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and he is challenging that because they have a very worldly view of wisdom and it's not a godly one. That's the context. All right, let us begin. This part, we're looking at focusing on how God sees the world. Now, to set the scene when you're looking at verse 18, uh, Paul gives kind of two imperatives, imperatives being like a, a really necessary word, something that's urgent for them to follow. And he says, don't be deceived, become a fool. Have a look at me, verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this world, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Now when Paul says there the standards of this age, he's talking about the Corinthian culture, what's going on around what they're saying is right. The the age to come is when uh, Jesus returns. But what he's saying here is pretty clear. Don't be deceived, become a fool. Now, that's a pretty strange encouragement to give to someone. You know, you've been deceived, become a fool. Uh, It's not really in anyone's kind of top 10 list of things they want to do. But what Paul is doing here is becoming really intentionally provocative. Because remember, the Corinthians, they think they're wise. They think that they're mature. They think that they're spiritual. They think they've got it all together. And he is directly calling them out. He's saying, you think you're wise. You think that way, but you are being deceived. Now, how is it that they're being deceived? We've been exploring this a lot throughout the letter, so we're not going to go into it in great detail here. But as we were saying, the Corinthians, they've adopted the culture around them. And what particularly they're going on about is they're seeking status. They're seeking status, they're claiming wisdom, and they're claiming honor for themselves. And the way they're going about that is they're following particular leaders, saying, I belong to this one over that one bagging out the other and they think wisdom is kind of found in the philosophers of the day in like if we were to bring it into our culture it's kind of like the the celebrities or the the popular figures that come across our uh, news feeds and social media feeds youtube talk about shows So the people that are sounding compelling and uh, attractive they're adopting that kind of wisdom and paul is saying you're being deceived to follow the worldly thinking and philosophy. It looks appealing, but it's actually hollow. And in a while, he's going to say it's futile. It's a bit like an internet scam. You know these internet scams? They look amazing, look dazzling and wonderful. Like all these things are promised to you, uh, but in the end, it all falls apart. There is no value there. And he's saying to Corinthians, that's kind of what's going on for you, except you are holding on to it. You're thinking that that's right. You're being deceived. The solution... Become a fool. Now, to become a fool in this context is to embrace Jesus, to embrace the cross of Christ, a crucified Jewish Messiah, a crucified Jewish Messiah who is the way to God, the one who brings in the kingdom of God, the one who allows grace, the way for us to be in relationship with God again. It's ludicrous. It sounds foolish. It is the opposite to the value system of Corinth, but that is the wisdom of God. And Paul is saying, "Sure, you're going to have to look like a fool in the eyes of the world to become genuinely wise, to follow in the way of Jesus. Now of course, that's not like initially attractive in a sense, right? To become a fool is not something they're going to uh, want to do. It's going to cost them, especially socially. So Paul is going to try to change their perspective here. And he does that by using two quotes. The first quote he goes to is from in the Old Testament, it's always from the Old Testament. Uh, from the wisdom literature book of Job. And he brings it up from Job chapter 13, and this is what he quotes in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 19. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Now, there's a lot going on in the context of Job, but what you capture from here uh, is that God is superior in every way over human wisdom. Uh, he's superior in his own wisdom and strength. It can appear cunning and crafty, but God catches it. He's all-knowing uh, and superior. It's a bit like with my kids, and if you can imagine this, if you have like anybody that's little, when they go off and they try to do something sneaky, like get a biscuit or something like that, and then they think they're doing it behind your back, and they run off behind something and eat it, and then you're like, Aaliyah, did you eat a biscuit? No, it was Bell, Aaliyah. I think you ate a biscuit and she's like how did you know there's a trail of biscuit crumbs there's a biscuit over her face you know she thinks she's cunning but she's not she's caught out and that's the image that God is saying about worldly wisdom okay superior he's above he catches it out the next quote is from psalm 94 verse 11 and he says this in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. He's not only superior, but he looks at the wisdom of the world and he goes, it's futile. To be futile means that it's, in a sense, it's useless. It's passing away. It fades away. It doesn't produce fruit. For those who are familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, that kind of meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, that Hebrew word, Havel, is the same word that's used in Psalms here. The idea being that Worldly wisdom is passing away. It's in and it's out of fashion. It ultimately does not last. And when we see worldly wisdom from that perspective, because that's how God sees it. So when we see worldly wisdom from that perspective, it loses, it, it loses its appeal. It might appear good, but it will fail us. Now, for the Corinthians, their specific issue was that they're looking for status and they're fighting over leaders and boasting in that section. But what about for us? In what ways are we deceived? What ways can we be deceived uh, by the the worldly wisdom of of Sydney, of Western society, suburbia? How is it we need to see as God does? Now, some things might be running through your mind. That's helpful. Uh, In our day, and one of the ways is that we're deceived to thinking that sin is good and that there is no consequences. Sin, which is basically going against God and his good design, and we can think, well, that is best, especially in the short term, right? It can seem fun. It can seem desirable. It can seem pleasurable. It's, it's natural. Like, sin is incredibly deceptive. Um, if it wasn't, we wouldn't do it. And we live in a culture that not only does it, but celebrates it. And sin becomes normalized, and we just think it's okay. Everyone else is doing it. Right? Consider for a moment a few things. Like you just take, for example, money. Like the world around us is centered towards wealth, centered towards greed, and the pursuit of money for security, status, and pleasure. We easily can fall into that trap too. Relationships, they become far more transactional. They're not life-giving and sacrificial. Our view on sex becomes corrupted. We don't see the consequences that happen to our friends. Well, maybe God's way isn't quite right. Maybe that's out of date. Truth becomes relative. You do you. That's my truth. Like, that's the mantras of today. And it can be like a whole range of things. And we hear these things and we kind of... I get deceived by them through a whole range of stuff. It might be through friendships or especially people that are close to us. It's often through things that we watch, uh, the music we listen to, the YouTube channels, the personalities that we engage with on our social media feed, wherever it may be. Often it's things that aren't inherently wrong, but they have the power to deceive, to pull us away from God. Ultimately, we become blind to them. And we're deceived by the things of the world. We need to ensure that the ways that we're engaging is cr- we're having a critical mind, putting the gospel before them, assessing how it is that we're being formed. We need to see worldly wisdom as God sees it, to have His perspective. And it means we get called. We're going to, might be get called a fool because we don't follow in the ways of the world, but we'll be living in the godly and the wise way. And I appreciate that's hard. I appreciate that's hard, but that is the godly, the wise, the right way to live, and actually brings life. So that's Paul's first point. Don't be deceived. Become a fool. See well the wisdom as God sees it. With that, let's move on. Paul directly now confronts the situation, uh, the division over leaders. In verse 21, uh, he says it as clear as day. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. No more boasting, no more of this attitude. I follow Paul, I follow Paulus. It needs to stop. Now, what's pretty interesting here is he brings a new word to the letter, which is boasting. He hasn't said that before about uh, the way that Corinthians are behaving. Now, to boast, we know what that means. It's like to talk something up, it's to have excessive pride, excessive kind of self satisfaction uh, in one's achievements or possessions or ability. But it's strange, the Corinthians, they're not boasting in themselves. The boasting in leaders, what, what's going on there? In what ways uh, is that a boast? For the Corinthians in boasting about their leaders, it's not ultimately about the leaders. It's about them. See, they live in an honor-shame society. And if you're in an honor-shame society, uh, if someone is honored and you're associated with them, then you are honored. So in this quest to boast about leaders, in this quest for honour, it's ultimately about them. They are seeking their leaders to be exalted so that they can be exalted. Now, what ways in our culture can we boast? Right? Now, for you and I, living especially in Sydney, Australia, boasting is not necessarily looked on kindly. Right, We've got tall poppy syndrome. We want to cut down anybody that's kind of being a bit self-prideful. Uh, we want to knock them down if they've got too high view of themselves. But we're very concerned with our worth. And perhaps in a positive way too. But we want to know that we are valuable. We want to know that we're worthwhile people. And so we will make sure we give the impression that we are. And then in order to feel that sense of worth, we're tempted to highlight our achievements. We're tempted to highlight what we're good at, or whatever it is, so that other people like us, so that we feel worthwhile in their eyes. In the same way Corinthians are seeking honor for themselves, we could seek worth for ourselves from a worldly perspective. Now Paul's remedy to Corinthians is just as helpful to them as it is for us. He goes on uh, to say this from verse 21, or halfway through 21. Like all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Now that is actually an incredible kind of mind boggling statement. Like all things are yours, all things belong to you. Corinthians, he's saying to them, is like your vision is far too small. Not only too small, it's upside down. Corinthians, you think that you belong to the leader, but the leader is belonging to you. Like all of that belongs to you. Like lift your eyes and see. It's like that sand image from the beginning. If you're on a beach and you're just looking down at the sand, like look up and see where you are and the beauty and the gorgeousness which is around you. Paul is painting this kind of grand vision. He's opening their eyes to an eternal perspective. Because not only are these church servants, these church leaders, theirs, but then all the great, what they might call, tyrannies of life, the things that cause fear in our lives are theirs. The things that have power over us, they don't have power because we're in Christ. The world, life, death, the present, or the future. Like all these things that can cause fear that can tyrannize us, because we're in Christ, they have no power over us anymore. He is defeated, and so we have a glorious future. To fight over leaders and to gain our worth in earthly things is missing how God sees it. It's missing the truth, because we have all things we need in Christ and things that are to come. Paul is painting this kind of beautiful, positive vision. Look up. Look to God. Look to see his perspective on your life friends just like the corinthians we too need to see our worth and also our reality as god sees it because our worth it's not in our possessions it's not in our talents it's not in our abilities or in the people we know it's not in whether we've achieved or it's not in whether we've failed it's not in whether people have liked us or not or if they don't like us if we have friends or we don't have friends whatever it may be our ultimate worth is that we're in Christ. As that song that we sung just before, I am who you say I am. I am a child of God. That is where our ultimate worth is found. Created in, by God, redeemed by the Son, having life in the Spirit. That is our true identity. And our reality is that because that we're in Christ, there is eternity that is to come. We don't have to fret about the worldly things. When we do that, we lose perspective of our true reality. When we see as God does, the worldly squabbles and and the search for worth fades away when we see our worth and reality as God does. And with that said, uh, Paul continues on to address and kind of reframe their perspective on leaders. He, in a sense, picks up again what he's been talking about in chapter 3. And now we're going to cross over into chapter 4. Now, remember, in the first uh, Bible, the first letter, there is no chapter break. It's just one nice, long, uh, flowing argument. And Paul is saying here that servants are, or leaders are are servants, they're stewards, and they're called to be faithful. Have a look from verse 1 of chapter 4. In light of all that Paul has said, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and then as those entrusted with the mysteries of God. Now, it's required of those who have been given a trust that they must prove faithful. Now, in a sense, this is kind of very much a summary of what he's been doing in the previous couple of chapters. Uh, Last week, we explored that leaders are servants, but Paul actually uses a different word here, which is helpful to to highlight. He's adding a new layer of meaning to what it means to be uh, a servant of God. Especially when you add it with the language here that we see in the English, that those have been entrusted with something. Now, in ancient Roman times, if you were a big household owner, now, household is not, not so much what we think of wherever you live. Like, uh, to be a big household owner means that you've got property and you've got fields, you've got business, you've got servants, you've got your family. Like, all that is the household. And what a master would do is they'd appoint a servant, which is the same word that we see here, to look after the household while the master goes away. So as the master leaves, this kind of servant is like a steward looking after the affairs of the master while the master is gone. And Paul says, this is how you are to regard us. Now, we're celebrating Andrew's 25th today, and he would be the first person to tell you that he is ultimately not the boss. Sure, He has specific responsibilities that he's been entrusted to, that we're thankful for, but Christ is the boss. Christ is the master. We are stewards. We're servants. And that applies to all of us in our Christian walks in life, whatever capacity and abilities and position that God has put us in. The key requirement is to be faithful. The key requirement is to be a faithful servant of God. Can I say, I love that? That's what God requires of us. He doesn't require us to be funny or super intelligent or being able to be like a super incredible speaker or whatever it may be. The call is to be faithful, to be centered on Christ. For Paul, his task is to preach. He says, I've been entrusted to the mysteries. And we we saw that back in chapter 2. The mysteries are now revealed, Christ being the crucified Uh, Lord who brings reconciliation back to God, who rose again. That's the mystery of God that is now revealed. All of us have a similar task that we have capacity for, that we're called to be faithful in. We are called to be faithful in whatever sphere of influence that we find ourselves, to bloom where we are planted. We are servants of Christ, and Christ is the master. And so we need to see ourselves that way and we need to see others in that light too because that is how God is seeing us. Now, with all that kind of unpacking that's going on about the nature of leadership, he addresses the judgments that the Corinthians have been making on him. Now, we don't know exactly what was being said, but remember the context is that the the Corinthians are judging Paul and they're comparing him to the other leaders. It's like they're in a talent quest. And they're the judges and the leaders are like on there for them to say who's good, who's not, you know, who's in, who's out, all this kind of thing. He's assessing Paul's work. You know what Paul says to that? Let's read verse 3. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So judgment, it does not come from you, Corinthians. It comes from the master. It comes from the Lord when he comes back, from Christ. He's saying, sure, you chuck your sticks and stones. You chuck your insults at me. You say that I'm useless, that I'm worthless, that I'm rubbish, whatever. Give your worldly critique of me. Ultimately, that is of no value. It's like he were to compare it to like a farmer telling a builder how to build or a builder telling a farmer how to build. They're just so different. They're just competing ideas. Worldly wisdom, applying it to a godly servant, it doesn't work. The only judgment of value is from Jesus. And then what he says here in verse 4 is particularly interesting because he says that his conscience is clear, uh, but by that it doesn't make him innocent. What he's saying is like, I have nothing to hide. I know I'm faithful, to go back to chapter 3, I'm building with the gold, I'm building with the silver, with the costly stones. That's what my ministry is about. I'm not aware of anything against me. He's right before God, he's repented, he's right before him. But that doesn't make him innocent. He can't judge himself to say uh, that he's good. There may be ways in which... He is blind to himself, but also he knows that he is not the ultimate judge. The Lord is the judge because he is the one who knows the true motives of Paul, of any person. He knows what's going on in the heart behind their actions. Now, the point is that the judgments that he receives from others um, and himself are ultimately of no value. Like to pick up that talent show analogy that I said before, Corinthians, you're not the judge. And you know what? I'm not the judge either. The Lord is the judge because neither of us are trustworthy, neither of us are qualified, neither of us have the position to be passing judgment on one another. And brothers and sisters, can I say, that is the most liberating truth, the most liberating reality that because we're in part of the family of God, the judgments of others, in a sense, become irrelevant if they're worldly judgments. The judgments that we feel from others about the way that we look, or about what we do, or what we've achieved or haven't achieved, are we a good Christian? Are we a bad Christian? Like I know at times, and I've seen this as a pastor and before being a pastor some of the most damage that is done to Christians is done by the judgments made on them by other Christians. Like maybe you've felt that, you know that, and it's painful and it can really bite. And then there's kind of our own expectations. I mean, I, I feel this one immensely. We have this huge expectation we place in ourselves, and if we don't meet it, we feel like a failure, can feel like a fraud. But what this passage is doing is just completely shifting our perspective, taking us to show what is actually important. Because when we see ourselves as God sees us, it liberates us. It liberates us from ourselves and others when we see ourselves as God does. We now change our perspectives to see the judgments in light of the gospel. See, Paul, his identity is so rooted in who Christ says he is. It's so rooted in the gospel that the judgments of others can fall off him. But it's important that I make a qualifying statement here. Now, Paul doesn't say it directly here, but in the whole thrust of of the letter, when you look at verse Uh, chapter 5 and 6 and other bits to go, it is very clear that he's not saying, I don't care completely what Christians say. Like, I'm above you. He's not saying that. What he is saying uh, is that God is the one who judges. But if you're going to judge me on worldly criteria, then it doesn't matter. But friends, sometimes in our lives, God is going to use our brothers and our sisters to correct us or to rebuke us. And if you're the one doing that, we would need to make sure that we're doing it prayerfully and in love and with humility, in the leading of the Spirit and in line with the Word of God. But if we hear some of those loving warnings, corrections, judgments of others, it takes incredible humility to to listen it's not fun to be told to change or to remove something for your life, but it's ultimately life giving. Now, I appreciate this attention to know well, do I listen to the judgment or not? We need to make sure we're listening ultimately to the word of God. And if you're going to give the judgment, going to give the critique, then definitely make sure that it's in line with God's word and having a humble heart towards them. But we need to make sure we're like iron sharpens iron like listening to our brothers and sisters and the the Word of God. Sometimes it's like a surgery, like removing of a tumour or something like that. That's hard. It's painful. It's not necessarily enjoyable. But the process is good. It brings life. So sometimes we do need to listen to the judgments of others. But Paul is giving a, a very helpful correction to when it's worldly judgment. That's what's going on here. Now, to return to the passage, he then continues with the last verse here, verse 5. Sure, he's not judged by others, but then he explains it certainly is from the Lord. Verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. The reason primarily not to judge others, leave the judgment to God. Jesus is the judge. When he comes, he'll bring to light the true motives of someone's heart. He'll show if someone is being faithful, they've been building with the gold and silver, or if they've been lazy and building with the the sticks and the straw. We need to see as God sees us. We are accountable to him and to him alone. Now, as we saw in the previous passage, uh, God will judge our work according to how faithful we are now i know that's a bit of a strange concept we're not talking about salvation here we are saved by grace and by faith alone that is definitive that's paul in ephesians throughout the whole bible romans everywhere saved by grace alone but what we see also throughout the language of paul and the bible is that how we work how we are faithful has importance it has relevance we're accountable to god there's a wonderful parable that, that Jesus says in Matthew 25 about the parable of the talents, five, two, one talent, you might be familiar. The point is that God gives people responsibility and they're called to then go and be faithful to that responsibility. And for the ones that are faithful, he says, welcome home, good and faithful servant, receiving the praise and the honor of God, as we see in verse five here. That is what we strive for as we labor by the grace that is fueled in us by God. Friends, it is so important for all of us as we seek to live as people called to be distinctly Christian in an unchristian culture to see the world, ourselves, and others as God does. Because when we do that, when we're seeing with God's perspective, we clearly see that the way of the world is passing away, that God's way is far more superior. His perspective is going to change the way that we view others and it changes the way that we view ourselves. We're liberated from that judgment. It becomes like water off a duck's back and we know that we're accountable to God. And God, he invites us and he allows us to see as he does. That is a grace that he has given us, a beautiful thing, and it's so that we can have life, so we can know the right way to live. And yes, we might be called a fool, We might be called a fool in this world, but it is the wise way and the life-giving way as we follow our Lord Jesus together. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you that you are a wise God. We thank you that you've showed us the way in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that your wisdom in showing us how we could be made right with you was revealed in the Lord Jesus, that he died on that cross and rose again. We, We cannot say enough thanks and gratitude. We thank you for the grace that is showered upon us. Please help us to see as you see. Holy Spirit, help us to have the mind of Christ, to see this world and its wisdom and to know it is passing away, but to center ourselves on your wisdom and the Lord Jesus. We certainly need your help to do this. Please do this and help us to be humble to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.